Fellowship Fayetteville. Happy New Year, everyone. The few, the proud that braved this cold, cold weather out here that came out of nowhere. Um, well, really, Happy New Year. Look forward to starting fresh every year. And I know uh, a lot of us make New Year's resolutions, but here's my question this morning, and be bold here. Raise your hand if you made a New Year's resolution and you have already failed. Okay, yes, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. I love it. Um, and that might be a new record, uh, but <laughs> here's the beauty of it. We make these New Year's resolutions and they're good things, I think, hopefully for the most part. Um, we wanna change something for the better in our lives, um, the way we treat others, the way um, we pursue the Lord. And a lot of times we find success in those and they're good changes that last and it's awesome. And there's other times that we fail really quickly. Um, but the beauty in Christ our Lord is that our standing, our worth, our value does not change no matter if we keep a resolution throughout the whole year and for the rest of our lives or if we fail within the first 24 hours. That his love for us is unchanging, our value is unchanging, that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so we can rejoice in that this morning and always. And so let's stand together. We're gonna worship alongside each other this morning.
Well, Happy New Year, Fellowship, first Sunday of 2022. So glad to have y'all worshiping with us this morning. My name's Michael. I serve on the community team here, and I wanna say welcome to church above the Arctic Circle, where we live now. To those of you joining us on the live stream, I hope you're safe and warm, and we're glad to have you with us this morning as well. Well, with the new year, as Ryan said, fresh start and some new things starting up around here. I wanna just remind you about women's ministry. That team's been working hard, ladies, to put together some really good studies for y'all. Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, groups throughout the week. You can uh, hit the QR code. That'll take you to our news page and tell you all about those opportunities. You can also visit with them at the booth. And also Discover Fellowship, which will start up next Sunday. So if you've been thinking about Discover Fellowship, again, you can hit the QR code, get the info, or go by the booth. Registration's still open for that as well. Well, along with the new year comes a new series and I'm excited about this study that we're gonna be in in the book of Jonah. Over the next month, we're gonna look at the book of Jonah, and then the month after that, throughout February, we're gonna be looking at the book of Ruth, and what we're gonna see in these two Old Testament books is a picture of God's faithfulness. So let me ask you a question. What do you think of when you think of the book of Jonah? The whale. Yes, of course, the whale, it's spectacular, it's supernatural, it's gripping, it makes for a great kid story. These pictures are from children's Bibles. We love to tell our kids this story. When we tell it to the kids, we actually call it Jonah and the whale. But as we look at the book, what we're gonna see is the book actually downplays the whale. The ESV is gonna call it the fish, so I'm just gonna say the fish. The fish is only mentioned twice in the whole book. Once when God appoints the fish to swallow Jonah and once when God speaks to the fish and tells him to vomit Jonah out on dry land. And so rather than making the fish the centerpiece of the story, what we see is that it's actually, a, it's actually presented as just a fact with no commentary at all. And so, let's take on the whale in the room, so to speak. Could a person be swallowed by a fish, stay in the fish for three days, and then be vomited out alive and well on dry land? That's what we're all wondering, right? I've already had some people ask me this when they heard we were studying Jonah. Did this really happen? Well, I wanna answer that question with a question. Could a person be killed, placed in a tomb, sealed up for three days, and then walk out alive again? If you're a follower of Jesus, you have to answer yes, because that's what we believe about Jesus Christ. That's the central miracle that our whole faith rests upon. And so when we read a text like Jonah, or any of the other miraculous supernatural events we see in Scripture, it actually should be easy for us to say, yeah, God could do that. The God who spoke everything into existence, he could suspend the very laws of nature that he created. Yeah, he absolutely could use the whale or the fish in a unique and unexpected way. And so here's what I'm saying this morning. Let's don't get hung up on the fish. It isn't the main point of the book, and I think we all think we know what the book of Jonah is about, but my prayer is that as we study it carefully together for the next few weeks, we're gonna have a new understanding as we engage this book. So we always say when we start the study of a book of the Bible that we need to ask a few questions so we can better understand it. Questions like, when does this book take place? And in the case of Jonah, we would say it's in mid-8th century before Christ, so around 750 B.C. And where does this book take place? Well, it takes place during the time of the divided kingdom when there were 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south with separate governments in Israel. All of you Panorama graduates should be perking up as I say the divided kingdom. That helps us place this in the biblical timeline. Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom. He was a prophet during the time of Jeroboam II, who was one of many bad kings in Israel. And so Jonah's there serving the Lord during a time of 
national prosperity, economic prosperity, the borders were expanding, and yet it was a time of moral bankruptcy. We also always want to ask the question, what genre of literature is this book? We don't read an epistle or a letter the same way we read a book of prophecy. We don't read wisdom literature or a psalm the same way that we would read, say, a gospel. So what genre is the book of Jonah? Well, some have said it's simply an allegory. It's a made-up story where everything represents something else, that it's events that didn't really happen but are designed to teach us something. Others commentators have weighed in and said it's actually a farce. It's a series of outlandish events told for comedic effect. If you're trying to think of what's a modern example of a farce, many of you watched one during the holidays. Home Alone is a farce. No one watches that movie and thinks, that could actually happen. No, it's just for comedic effect. Or is the book of Jonah history? Is it a retelling of actual events? Well, let's look at the evidence together. First of all, we know that Jonah was a real person. He's mentioned in the book of 2 Kings. That's how we know that he was a prophet during the time of Jeroboam II. And the book of 2 Kings is absolutely straightforward history. What happened during that divided kingdom period? And the Bible doesn't tell fanciful or made-up stories about actual historical figures. So it seems really unlikely to me that the writer of Jonah would have taken an actual historical figure, a prophet of God, and just made up a story about him. But the really compelling evidence to me is the way Jesus talks about Jonah. Over in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verse 29, the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. They want him to, to give them a sign. And look at what Jesus says. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Verse 30, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And that doesn't sound like Jesus is talking about a fictional character, does it? Jonah was sent by God to warn Nineveh of judgment. Jesus says he's doing the same thing. But look at verse 32. It's even more forceful. Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The people of Nineveh repented. And that sounds like he's talking about an actual historical event to me. So I feel confident saying that Jonah is a book of prophetic history. It's telling us about actual events, but it's prophetic history told to teach a lesson through irony and humor. And we're gonna highlight some of those things as we work our way through the book. And so what we hold in our hands when we open the book of Jonah is a literary masterpiece. It's only 48 verses long, but it's 48 carefully constructed, beautifully written verses that the author intends to make the audience laugh even as he unpacks a story with some pretty heavy themes. And we're gonna see two of the primary themes in Jonah are God's compassion and God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty means he's in control. He's, he's powerful enough that what he wants to happen is what happens. We're gonna see that on full display later this morning as we look at chapter one. We're also gonna see his compassion. God cares about suffering. He cares about the people made in his image who populate this planet. And we're gonna see that demonstrated in chapter one as well. So we might say it this way. God is sovereign over all and his compassion extends to all. Whether it's a prophet of Israel or pagan sailors on a ship or the citizens of the capital of Israel's enemy, God's sovereign over them, and he has compassion over them. And by the way, God's sovereign over me and you, and he has compassion for me and you. 
So I'm excited about what we're gonna see as we study this book of Jonah together. We've all been working on it for a while, and, and Ryan, I know the worship team has been thinking about this book for a while, and y'all have actually written a song just for this series. Yeah, yeah. so um, it's something that we're trying to do more often as, as a worship staff and team is uh, look forward to sermon series that are approaching and actually come together as a team and write for that. And Kelly's kind of leading the charge on that. And we had the privilege of um, Kelly, Dave, and I being able to write this song uh, called Remind Us. It's for this series in particular. Um, and we were able to record it. And so as you, as you go home, um, you can listen to it on whatever you stream music uh, through, just under Fellowship Worship. It's called Remind Us. And so um, would love to teach it to you this morning. So uh, it's a pretty simple song. Uh, so as you learn it more, uh, I encourage you to sing, sing with us, worship alongside us this morning. But let's go ahead. Let's stand together. Let's sing the song. Shall we go to escape your glory? No valley low and no mountain on high. When billows roll, when we cry for your mercy, will you remind us of your love? In town, your grace flows over failures you search and know the depths of our souls and our hearts are formed more like you Jesus as your love pours over us
son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Y'all can have a seat. Man, what a start to the story. <laughs> you know, in our culture, we have certain rhythms. When we hear something, we automatically anticipate what's gonna come next. Let me show you how it works. Here's one that we, many of us, I started to say all of us, most of us, yesterday, were practicing. What comes after? Woo pig. Yes. Some of us said that before we said mama. It's ingrained in us. We've heard it our whole life. Advertisers, they understand how this works. What comes after melts in your mouth? Yes, of course. That goes back to World War II. Melts in your mouth, not in your hand. You expect that to come next. One last one. It's especially relevant today, right now. Fill in this one. Merry Christmas and happy, of course, New Year. None of you were th thinking, is it Easter? Is it happy Easter? I don't know what comes next. No, there's a rhythm to it. We understand it. We anticipate it. The Bible does the same thing. There are certain phrases that biblical authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, repeat so that it becomes an expected rhythm. For example, holy, holy, yes, you expect that third holy. We see it over and over in Scripture. One from the New Testament, grace and peace. Paul says grace and peace so often that when we see one, we expect peace to follow. And throughout the prophets, there's a common pattern we see over and over. God says, arise and go. And then it says, so the prophet arose and went. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll start with one of the great prophets, Elijah. I know many of our women studied Elijah in the fall in their study. It was a very fruitful study. In 1 Kings 17, 9, God says, arise, 
Go to Zarephath, verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. Fast forward a little bit in time. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise, go down to the potter's house. Verse three, so I went down to the potter's house. One last one, Ezekiel chapter three, verse 22. Arise, go out into the valley. Verse 23, so I arose and went out into the valley. It's expected, it makes sense. These are God's men. These prophets are the very spokesmen of God. We would expect them When God says, arise and go, they would arise and go. This pattern is very well established when we turn to the book we're studying. Jonah, you heard it as Kelly read it. It opens with that familiar phrase. Now the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh. And so just like melts in your mouth, not in your hands, we expect it to say, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. But what comes next is an example of how this author uses humor, as he says very flatly, so Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. Now, we may not be slapping our knees because that's the funniest thing we've ever heard, but the original readers would have been. See, here's where God told Jonah to go. Nineveh, it's in northern Iraq. It's about 550 miles from where Jonah was in northern Israel. That's where God said to go, and here's where Jonah went. Jonah went 180 degrees as far as he could, the opposite direction. This would be like me beginning a story today like this. You know, the Lord came to me. He said, Michael, I want you to get in your car and drive to Nashville. So I jumped on the next flight to Seattle. It makes no sense, and it's humorous. Jonah did exactly the opposite of everything God said. God said, go east, Jonah went west. God said, go overland, Jonah jumped on a boat. God said, go to the big city, Jonah went to a frontier town. You know, when I was a kid, if something was really far away, we'd say it was in Timbuktu. Did y'all grow up with that? I grew up in North Little Rock. Somebody had moved way away to like, Memphis. <laughs> and my parents would say, they moved off to Timbuktu. That's kind of how Tarshish was for ancient Israel. It was the edge of the world. It was as far away as you could go. And Jonah would rather go there than go to Nineveh. And so at this point, early on in this book, we have to ask the question, why? I mean, Jonah's a prophet of God. He undoubtedly knew that Nahum, another prophet, a prophet who, by the way, you're gonna read this week if you're following along with the daily readings in the app. He knew that Nahum had already prophesied Assyria's demise. And so why did Jonah do the opposite of what God said? Well, I think the answer is because Jonah's exactly like us. We all wake up every day thinking, I know what's best. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, and neither would we. Now, we're going to talk more about that city in a couple of weeks when Jonah, against his will, actually goes there. But for our purposes this morning, let's just say this. It wasn't exactly a hub of Jewish tourism. Assyria was the capital, or Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was Israel's greatest enemy. They were the greatest threat to Israel's very existence. And this city, Nineveh, for an Israelite, it was the very embodiment of evil. So God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah thinks to himself, I have a better idea. It's called not go to Nineveh. See, Jonah doesn't want to warn the Assyrians as God has charged him to. He likes Nahum's prophecy. He likes the idea of Assyria being wiped off the face of the earth. He wants God to go ahead and do that and get it over with. He doesn't want them to experience God's forgiveness. And so just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Jonah says, I heard what you said, God, but I like my plan better. And we all do that. Every one of us does that in some area of our life. 
God, I heard what you said about sex. God, I know what you said about money. God, I know what you said about how I spend my time. God, I know what you said about what comes out of my mouth. God, I know what you said about fill in the blank. But I like my way better, and so I'm going to stick with it. And what the writer of Jonah very cleverly shows us is what inevitably follows disobedience. And that's descent down, down, down. Look what the writer does. He puts it together in these little couplets in the verses to make it jump off the page. In verse three, Jonah went down to Joppa. And then he went down into the ship. Verse five, he went down into the inner part of the ship. And then he laid down and went to sleep. And y'all heard it as Kelly read it. The chapter ends with Jonah going down into the ocean, down into the belly of the fish. And we're gonna see next week when we get into chapter two, Jonah says, he's at the roots of the mountains. He goes as low as you can possibly go. When we disobey God and we run the other way, there's only one way to go. And that's down, down, down. So right off the bat, we see the humor, the irony, the wordplay as the writer weaves this story. The prophet of the Lord goes 180 degrees, the opposite direction of what God says. He tries to hide from God on the open sea. What kind of sense does that make? And his disobedience will take him down and then further down and then down to the bottom but as the writer has us laughing at this ridiculous situation, he hits us with some hard truth. Look with me at verse six. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I love that line, what do you mean, you sleeper? If you, like me, have raised teenagers, you've wanted to say that. What do you mean, you sleeper? It's one o'clock in the afternoon. Get up. The writer wants us to see, again, how ridiculous this whole situation is. Verse four said the Lord hurled a storm at the ship. It's the same Hebrew word that's used when you hurl a spear. God threw this storm at this ship. Now the sailors are on deck, and what are they doing? Same word, hurling the cargo overboard to try to save the ship. They're praying. They're calling out to their pagan gods. They're doing everything they can to save the ship and its occupants. Where's God's man? Where's Jonah? He's asleep. He's spiritually and physically asleep. He's completely oblivious to everything happening around him. Now, remember the formula, the rhythm? Melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Arise and go. So he arose and went. Look what the captain says. Arise and call out to your God. You see what the writer's doing here. God said, arise. Jonah went down. So God sends this pagan sea captain to use the very words of God to say to Jonah, arise. Don't stay down here in the ship. Call out to your God and maybe he'll save us. This just drips with irony. The prophet who refused to go to the pagans to point them to God now has a pagan pointing him to God. So I picture Jonah half asleep, stretches, stumbles up the stairs to the deck, and up there the sailors are being lashed with wind and waves, and the ship's being tossed about, and the sailors are casting lots. Now, they're probably painted stones or bones. This was a pagan practice. And they're casting these lots and eliminating one by one who's the cause of this problem. And lo and behold, it comes down to Jonah. God's even sovereign over these dice that the sailors are throwing. Now, I'm not saying we should cast lots to make decisions, but I am saying in this particular case, God used that to point the finger squarely at Jonah. 
And so the sailors ask him. They say to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? Look at our man Jonah's reply. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, Yahweh, Lord in all caps, Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now I have to confess, I feel a tiny bit of sympathy for Jonah here. Because when you're in Jonah's line of work, that can be kind of an awkward question. Not too long ago, I was selling a vehicle. I was on the phone, you know. I mean, it wasn't contentious, but we're trying to strike a deal. And in the course of the conversation, the guy says, what do you do for a living anyway? I said, well, I'm a pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Fayetteville. He said, oh, man, I've been talking to you like you was a regular person. I said, I am a regular person. He said, oh, no, you're not. He bought the car. So I kind of feel for Jonah. But look at his answer. It's rich. I'm a Hebrew. He knows he's the problem. He knows he's the reason this ship and all of its crew is about to sink. But he proudly states, I am a Hebrew which, by the way, is the word that outsiders use to describe people in Israel in the Old Testament. And then he declares, I follow Yahweh. I fear the Lord, the maker of, catch it, the sea and the dry land. Where did God tell Jonah to go? The dry land. Where is Jonah now? Trying to hide from God on the open sea that he's boldly proclaiming God himself made. Now, we know that the Bible uses that word fear to mean reverence, respect. But does Jonah fear God? The writer contrasts that in verse 10 with the fear of the sailors. They were exceedingly afraid and said, what is this that you've done? Jonah claims to fear God. The pagan sailors actually fear God. And the answer to that question, what have you done? Is Jonah's done nothing to help them or anybody else. He has defied God. He has gone the other way. He's brought calamity on himself and everyone around him. And his response has been to go to sleep in the middle of a catastrophe of his own making. Meanwhile, contrast that with what the sailors have done. They hurled the cargo in the sea to try to save the ship. They rowed hard to land. The Hebrew there in that verse, it actually means dig. They dug the water trying to save that boat. When they finally decide they're gonna have to throw Jonah overboard, they prayed to the Lord and asked him to forgive them. And then when God immediately ceased the storm, they worshiped Yahweh, the God of Israel, and offered sacrifices to him. And so with great skill, here's the picture the writer has painted for us. A pagan ship captain who points a prophet of Israel to God. Pagan sailors who do everything in their power to save themselves and Jonah. But Jonah, on the other hand, the prophet of Israel, he's shown no concern for the pagan citizens of Nineveh, no concern for the pagan sailors on the ship or their captain. And just in case you're kind of thinking, well, he was kind of heroic when he said, throw me overboard to save yourselves. No, that's not heroic. If you know you're the problem, jump, dude. Don't make yourself somebody else's problem. He forced those sailors to handle his business. So what we see in Jonah, is a poser. He's a pretender. Oh, he knows the right words. I fear Yahweh, the maker of the sea and land. His theology's good, but it's shallow because it doesn't affect his life. His theology, his right belief about who God is, 
it doesn't make any difference in his actions. Because what's really controlling his behavior is what he wants. See, I think deep down, Jonah didn't want those dirty Gentiles in Nineveh to experience God's grace and mercy. His pride in being a Hebrew blinded him to the suffering of others. And all of the theology in the world won't fix that. And the same thing can happen to us. We can know the right answer. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, saved by grace, born again of the Spirit. But if we don't let that affect how we live, if we don't let that drive our behavior, we can be just like Jonah, asleep. As chaos swirls around us, the world may be looking at us and saying, what do you mean, you sleeper? How can you turn away from what's happening? See, when the world sees people who claim the name of Christ, but are driven by materialism, driven by a desire for power, people who say they follow Jesus, but they're racist, and they hate people who disagree with them, people who say they love the Lord, but they have no care for the people on the margins. When our behavior doesn't line up with our theology, we look just like Jonah does here, giving lip service to God while our actions are the opposite of what God has called us to do. And we all know what happens next in the story. The sailors ask God to forgive them for what they're about to do, and they hurl, it's the same Hebrew word again, the writer is so clever. They hurl Jonah into the sea, and immediately the storm ceases, and the sailors worship the creator God of Israel. In Jonah's attempt to avoid pointing dirty Gentiles to God, he's done just that. And as Jonah goes further down, down into the sea, look at the words here. God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That word appointed, the NIV uses provided, which is fair, but the Hebrew has this, this connotation of a careful provision. Appointed captures it well. It was done with great care. God is going to appoint some other things in this book. The same Hebrew word is gonna be used as God appoints a plant, a worm, and the wind. God's gonna provide each of these things with a purpose. And here's what really strikes me about Jonah's situation here. Even though he is in open rebellion against God, he has not shown one ounce of repentance. No care for the sailors on the ship. No desire to return and obey God. The Lord spares him. He has mercy on him. God in his sovereignty appoints, provides with care a fish to swallow Jonah, an act of grace that's gonna not only rescue Jonah, but is gonna return him to God's intended purpose for him. Now, he gave him three days and three nights to think about it. <laughs> he put him in time out, didn't he? A very dark, smelly, and terrifying time out. But it was really an act of incredible mercy and grace from God. So remember what we said in our opening about this book. The book of Jonah teaches us that God is sovereign over all and his compassion extends to all. What we've seen in this book is that God is indeed sovereign. He's sovereign over the wind and the waves. He's sovereign over the sea. He's sovereign over the fish that he appoints for his purpose. He's even sovereign over the lots that the sailors cast. God is completely in control because he's sovereign over all but we've also seen his compassion. He saves the sailors, he saves the captain, he even saves unrepentant Jonah. And all of this is taking place in the context of his desire to have compassion on Nineveh because his compassion extends to all. And so the question that confronts us as 21st century readers is the exact same question that the author wanted to confront 
8th century B.C. Israelite readers with. And the question is simply, how do I respond? How do I respond to the sovereignty, easy for me to say, how do I respond to the sovereignty and compassion of God? Am I like Jonah, sleeping while there are real needs around me that are going unmet? Am I like Jonah, saying the right things with my lips while my actions display the opposite? Am I like Jonah, caught in a downward spiral because of my disobedience? The good news, remember that's what gospel means, the good news is that just as God appointed a fish to save Jonah while he was still in open rebellion against God, God has appointed a savior for us. In Acts 3.20, Peter's preaching, and he says, God sent the Christ, the Messiah, and this is what he says, appointed for you, and his name is Jesus. God provided a savior with great care. He appointed Jesus. So that's our first response is just to simply accept this free gift of grace that God has provided for us, even while we were in our sin and rebellion in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then to live our lives as an act of obedience, not because we're trying to earn anything, but as a response to what God's already done for us. There's another place in the New Testament that the word appointed is used, and it's in John 15, 16. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Man, that's God's sovereignty and compassion in one verse. God's sovereign, he's in control of everything, and he's going to accomplish what he wills, and he's compassionate. He sees, he knows, and he cares. And so just as he appointed the fish, he appointed for us a savior, and now those of us who are followers of Jesus, he's appointed us to bear fruit so that others can see the sovereignty and compassion of God. And all that's left for us to do is respond. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this incredible story. Thank you for how you worked in the time of Jonah and how you're at work today. And so, Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, use your word to convict us the places that we need to change in response to your sovereignty and your compassion. Lord, thank you that you're faithful and that you never stop coming after us. Your heart won't stop coming after me. Your Your heart won't stop coming after 
Let's stand and continue to worship this morning. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. May my heart believe. In every victory, Jesus is better. ourselves just as Jonah, God, your love does pour over us. You know the depths of our souls, and yet you love us still. And so we rejoice in that this morning, God, that you would send your son to die on a cross, to raise again, to to provide to us a path of salvation. Praise be to God for that. We love you, Lord Jesus. Fellowship, we love you guys so much. We've got the prayer room available uh, to your right. If you want to take part in prayer and communion, uh, stay warm out there. We'll see you next week. Have a great week of worship.